0: Welcome to Conference Coverage Highlights, presented by ReachMD on XM160 and powered by HealthDay. Conference Coverage Highlights features the latest clinical information and research findings from the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists' 18th Annual Meeting and Clinical Congress. The meeting took place May 13th through the 17th,
1: 2009, in Houston. I'm Dr. Mark Kina. And I'm Sue Berg. The theme of this year's meeting was Exploring New Frontiers in Endocrinology. Over 1,300 people attended from around the world. New research and advances were highlighted in the treatment of diabetes, thyroid disorders, growth hormone deficiency, osteoporosis, cholesterol disorders, hypertension, and obesity. The first plenary session of the meeting focused on prediabetes. An estimated 57 million Americans are pre-diabetic. Specific guidelines for managing prediabetes were presented that came out of the first-ever Prediabetes Consensus Conference, held in July of 2008 in Washington, D.C. At that conference, 23 experts in diabetes and metabolic disorders from around the world gathered to examine the existing scientific data on prediabetes, including its complications, what happens to patients who develop full-blown diabetes, and the economic implications of early intervention. Their guidelines included lifestyle modifications such as moderate weight loss of 5 to 10% in order to bring down blood pressure and glucose levels, a reduced-calorie diet high in fiber and low in carbohydrates, sodium, and alcohol. They said that lifestyle modifications are the cornerstone of prediabetes treatment, but pharmaceutical interventions should be used as necessary. Medications including TZDs, DDP-4, and GLP-1 can be helpful for high-risk patients who do not respond to diet and exercise.
0: There was a presentation on the importance of vitamin D to bone health in preventing osteoporosis and increasing the recommended daily dose. The presentation was by Dr. Neil Binkley of the University of Wisconsin. Dr. Binkley discussed the role of vitamin D in improving muscle function, which helps reduce the risk of bone fractures. Studies were cited showing that lower levels of vitamin D are also associated with cancer, type 1 diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. The body produces its own vitamin D from exposure to sunlight, but Americans tend to block vitamin D with sunscreen or avoid sun exposure altogether due to concerns over skin cancer. Older adults are less able to produce vitamin D. The National Institute of Health's Food and Nutrition Board currently recommends between 400 and 600 international units of vitamin D per day, but Dr. Binkley called that dosage grossly inadequate. He said that experts actually recommend between 1,500 and 2,600 IUs per day. He reported that dosages up to 40,000 IUs per day should be safe. He also recommended that patients who take supplements look for animal-derived vitamin D3, which has been shown to be more effective than plant-derived
1: vitamin D2. A study found that patients with primary hyperparathyroidism, or PHPT, and vitamin D deficiency showed less bone mineral density loss than expected. Previous studies have shown that PHPT combined with vitamin D deficiency predicted higher rates of osteoporosis and osteopenia in patients. For the latest study, researchers looked at 37 patients diagnosed with PHPT at a Navy hospital between 2004 and 2006. The cohort was divided into those with 25-hydroxyvitamin D level lower than 20 nanograms per milliliter, those with levels between 20 and 30 nanograms per milliliter, and those with vitamin D levels above 30. The researchers found bone density changes as vitamin D levels increased. Nine patients out of 17 with low 25-hydroxyvitamin D levels showed low bone mineral density, 12 out of the 16 patients in the middle group had abnormal bone density, and 3 out of 4 patients with the highest 25 OHD levels had abnormal bone density. The higher levels of bone density despite vitamin D deficiency suggest that PHPT may have some protective effect on bone density. An observational study suggests that
0: patients diagnosed with primary hyperparathyroidism may have a higher risk of developing cancer. Researchers in Scotland followed about 3,000 patients diagnosed with PHPT between 1981 and 2007 and compared their incidence of cancer and overall mortality with the general Scottish population. Patients were identified from the Scottish Morbidity Records and linked to the Scottish Cancer Registry and Scottish Mortality Records databases. Few countries have databases of this kind outside of Scotland and Scandinavian countries, Patients with pre-existing cancers or cancer that developed within a year of the PHPT diagnosis were excluded from the analysis. About 77% of the patients were female and about 23% were male. The mean age was 63.5 years. Researchers found that PHPT patients had a two-fold increased risk of developing cancer and a three-fold increased risk of death compared with the general population. The most commonly reported cancers were, in order, skin cancer, breast cancer, colorectal cancer, lung cancer, gastric and pancreatic cancer, with all other cancers together accounting for nearly 40% of cancers reported. The average time between diagnosis of PHPT and the diagnosis of cancer was six
1: years. Researchers from Canada presented findings that showed ultrasound is an effective tool for long-term thyroid cancer follow-up. Researchers looked at 191 patients diagnosed with thyroid cancer. All had had at least one post-surgical ultrasound of the neck. Researchers classified ultrasound findings as normal, suspicious, or equivocal. About 400 ultrasounds were performed between January 2000 and October 2008. 125 of those yielded abnormal findings. 85 ultrasounds were classified as suspicious, and 40 were classified as equivocal. Cancer recurred in more than three-quarters of patients with suspicious ultrasound scans and 13% of patients with equivocal scans. The researchers also compared ultrasound findings with tumor marker detection. Of 172 patients who tested positive for tumor markers, 70 ultrasounds were classified suspicious, and more than half of those patients had a recurrence of their thyroid cancer. 18 ultrasounds were classified equivocal, and cancer recurred in six. 15 patients had suspicious ultrasounds but normal tumor marker levels, and 22 patients had both equivocal ultrasounds and tumor marker status. The study concluded that ultrasound, combined with tumor marker status, was helpful in predicted recurrence of thyroid cancer. Fine needle aspiration biopsies from operated fields also confirmed recurrent cancer in 84% of the suspicious ultrasounds and 20% of equivocal scans. Biopsies from non-operated fields confirmed recurrent disease in 70% of suspicious ultrasounds and 9% of equivocal ultrasounds. These results led the researchers to confirm the importance of confirming the presence of recurrent cancer prior to operating.
0: A consensus group from the AACE and the American Diabetes Association called for major systemic changes in the nationwide management of hospital patients with high blood glucose levels. Inconsistent results from recent trials have raised concerns regarding specific glycemic targets in hospitalized patients and how to achieve these targets. Several randomized controlled clinical trials involving hospitalized patients with diabetes or elevated blood glucose levels in intensive care showed no significant improvement in mortality with intensive insulin therapy to achieve near-normal glucose levels. In a separate randomized controlled trial, intensive glycemic control targeting blood glucose of 80 to 110 mg per deciliter increased the risk of mortality. Researchers conducted a thorough analysis of all the published trials. They now recommend judicious control of glycemia in hospitalized patients, but less intensive targets than previously recommended. For hospitalized patients in the ICU, they recommended targets between 140 and 180 milligrams per deciliter, and between 100 and 180 for most other hospitalized patients.
1: Overweight teenage boys are at increased risk for early cardiovascular damage. Researchers looked at 107 apparently healthy teenagers between the ages of 15 and 17 years of age in order to examine the role of the hormone aldosterone in the development of early cardiovascular damage in healthy young patients. About half the subjects were male and about half were African American. Patients' aldosterone levels were checked after one week on a sodium-controlled diet. Researchers found that increased BMI and elevated aldosterone levels were associated with male subjects but not female subjects. In turn, higher aldosterone levels in males were associated with increased cardiovascular damage, including increased systolic blood pressure, right wall thickness, and left ventricular mass. Current guidelines recommend screening for hyperaldosteronism in overweight patients with high blood pressure. The researchers say these findings suggest that overweight males with normal blood pressure should be screened and treated for high aldosterone in order to decrease cardiovascular risk. A panel
0: discussion was devoted to the topic of teenage patients and type 2 diabetes. Children with type 2 diabetes are also at risk for conditions such as obesity, hypertension, and high cholesterol. Two clinical trials involving children and diabetes are currently being conducted by the National Institutes of Health. One trial is following a group of about 6,400 children from 6th to 8th grade to observe the effect of exercise programs and nutritious food offered in the schools on the risk of developing diabetes. This trial will be complete in the fall of 2009. The second trial is looking at treatment options for children with type 2
1: diabetes. According to researchers, patients with diabetes may see significant clinical improvements from simple low-cost care initiatives. Diabetes affects over 15 million Americans, with only about 10 million having been diagnosed. Researchers wanted to find out whether simple, low-cost diabetes care initiatives, such as education for both physicians and patients, can improve diabetes care. Resident physicians and nursing staff were exposed to educational interventions, such as lectures by an endocrinologist and a diabetes initiative team, a diabetes flow sheet and poster, as well as implementation of Medicare physician quality reporting initiatives. Data including blood pressure, prevalence of HGA1C blood glucose testing and documentation of foot exam to check for problems with the feet were collected from patient charts before the educational interventions were introduced. The same data was collected again between 4 and 12 months later after the educational interventions. At that point, the percentage of patients with blood pressure in the target range increased to over 50%. Additionally, 84% now had had a foot exam, whereas only 75% had had a foot exam previously, and prevalence of an HGA1C blood test had gone up almost 20%, from 76% of patients to 94% of patients.
0: There was also research suggesting that patients with type 2 diabetes may be able to safely and effectively reduce their insulin requirements with exenotide therapy. Researchers conducted a retrospective review of medical records from a university-affiliated practice to identify patients with type 2 diabetes mellitus on insulin who had begun exenotide therapy. 12 such patients compliant with exenotide therapy were identified. After 12 months, the use of exenotide resulted in a 0.78% reduction in hemoglobin A1c and an average weight loss of almost 5 pounds. Premial insulin was discontinued as a result of exenotide therapy in 5 out of 7 patients, and long-acting insulin requirements were reduced in 7 out of 11 patients. Also, 3 patients discontinued their long-acting insulin. Mild hypoglycemia was observed in 2 patients. Concerns over hypoglycemia have prevented exenotide from gaining widespread use. In this study, researchers observed that hypoglycemia occurred at similar rates with insulin and exenotide therapy
1: as with expected rates of exenotide therapy alone. In other diabetes research, data suggests that saliva may one day be used as a painless, inexpensive, needle-free method for detecting and monitoring diabetes. Investigators took saliva samples from 40 diabetic patients, looking for biomarkers that may indicate prediabetes and type 2 diabetes. They discovered nearly 500 unique proteins in the saliva. 65 of those revealed differences between normal glycemic patients and diabetic patients. A case study highlighted the practice of medical tattooing.
0: The case concerned an adult male patient who had had type 1 diabetes since childhood. The patient had tattooed the word diabetic above his right wrist as a solution to medical alert bracelets and necklaces that had to be replaced repeatedly over the years. The patient's physician discovered a similar tattoo on another patient and a wealth of information about medical tattooing on the internet, though not in the medical literature. Concerns regarding diabetic patients in particular who may choose a medical tattoo include transmission of disease such as hepatitis and HIV, infections, and allergic reactions. It was suggested in the presentation that there should be guidelines from the medical community regarding medical tattoos, and doctors should be well informed about the practice in order to help patients potentially navigate
1: the issue. New evidence was presented on metabolic surgery. Surgery is a new approach to metabolic disease that may send some patients' diabetes into remission. Bariatric surgery for extreme obesity has been shown to normalize blood sugar levels and other metabolic abnormalities. According to presenter Dr. Francesco Rubino, chief of gastrointestinal metabolic surgery at Weill Cornell Medical College, research suggests that bariatric surgery's effect on diabetes is not solely the result of weight loss, It may have to do with changes in the intestinal structures that result from the procedure itself. Further research may be indicated into the role of the bowel in diabetes. According to Dr. Rubino, the available evidence supports consideration of bariatric surgery as a treatment option for patients with type 2 diabetes. Thank you for listening to conference
0: coverage highlights from the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists' 18th Annual Meeting and Clinical Congress. The meeting was held May 13th through the 17th, 2009 in Houston. Conference coverage highlights as a presentation of ReachMD Radio, broadcast on XM160 and by live stream at ReachMD.com and powered by Health Day.